Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week, I will be reviewing the uh, recent adaptation of Stephen King's novella, 1922, which, as I record this, this is uh, Saturday, October 21st. It was released last night. on Netflix on Friday, October 20th. So I had a chance to watch it last night. I'll be reviewing it today. And before I get any further, I wanted to go through some emails uh, because it's been, as you know, a very prolific time for Stephen King. Uh, He has been busy. Uh, Other filmmakers and creative artists have been busy. We have seen It, of course, Gerald's Game, 1922, Stephen King and Owen King released Sleeping Beauties a few weeks ago, and then we have actually, keeping in the family, we have Joe Hill's uh, collection of short stories, Strange Weather, coming out on Tuesday. So it's it's a very fun time to be a fan of Stephen King and the family of Stephen King. And uh, so I've been getting a lot of emails lately. I've been falling behind in my emails, and I want to take some time to... To, to share some emails that I've gotten. So, spoiler alert for for it um, and Gerald's game um, throughout these these emails here. So, I just want to give everyone a heads up. So, up first we have Thomas who says, "Dear Constant Caster." Hello from Taurus Central, Orlando, Florida. I've been listening to your podcast from the beginning and never felt moved enough to email in, but obviously that changed. I'm 36, almost 37. One night, 27 years ago, my dad, who never did anything cool, actually let me stay up and watch the It miniseries. I was equally creeped out and enthralled. At that age, I didn't know books could be so off-the-wall bonkers. That weekend, I went to the library and checked out It. Everyone I knew had some remark or comment about me trying to read that book, none of them positive, but I was hooked. I then went to, to the stand and ultimately joined Roland's Cotet on the Path of the Dark Tower. I have since read everything that the man wrote and will continue to do so, but back to It. I would definitely have been in the Losers Club if there was a club uh, where I was. I've never really fit in on high school, college, or even the Army. While deployed, the other guys would make jokes because I had a Dark Tower book out, or The Stand, whatever. Then I found your podcast literally a few days after the first episode was released, and I have been a constant listener ever since. In fact, the moment I see your podcast appear in my feed, I smile from ear to ear and stop listening to whatever I have on at that time. Not only do I do fully enjoy your thoughts and analysis of each subject, but I love the structure of the show as well. And of course, your furry co-hosts. What I love the most are hearing emails from other listeners who more or less have the same story as me. It makes me feel like I belong in a way that not many other things or people have. I know you have a finite amount of things you can cover, but I truly hope the podcast goes on as long as possible. Thank you for doing what you do. You and your podcast are appreciated more than I can possibly express. You bring joy to my day, almost like I'm listening to a very close friend talking to me about one of my favorite subjects. Thank you, Cy. Thank you, Big Big. Long days and pleasant nights for you, your family, and your furry co-hosts. Thomas. P.S. You just load the new It movie podcast. I just got home from watching it, so I'm pretty stoked. Thomas, thanks, man. Thanks for thanks for writing in. I, I definitely know what it feels like to just never quite fit in, and you know the the fact that this is a you know a place and um, a podcast that you know can connect you to to like minded individuals. That's that's awesome. That that kind of goes above and beyond what I expected this podcast to be. But you're not alone. You're definitely not alone. There's a larger quartet of us, a larger quartet of the Losers Club out there. Then we have Ed who writes, Dear Stephen Kingcast, I'll start by saying I've been a listener for about two years now. I discovered your podcast while I was living in Barcelona teaching English. I picked up a secondhand copy of Thinner in an English language bookshop there and after finishing it, I wanted to hear someone else's thoughts on the book. And through Google, I found your podcast. I then went through every other episode of a book, movie, or miniseries which I had read or seen at one point or another. As for the first part of your It review, I found myself agreeing with about half of what you said and disagreeing with the other half. I absolutely loved the new film. I went to see it three times in the first five days of its release. I didn't love everything, but overall, like you, I think it was a great film. My biggest gripe with the film, though, is actually what you seem to love most about it. It's Beverly, or at least how the others compare to her. Don't get me wrong. I think the actor did a phenomenal job with the character, and the character often offers a great exploration of feminist issues, becoming a woman, objectification, victimization, empowerment, and so on. The problem I have is that I feel the writers fell so in love with Beverly 
the character that they decided to denigrate the other characters in order to make her look even greater still by comparison. Stan, robbed of his logic and rigid approach to reality, becomes an out-and-out coward in the movie. Richie, who is brave and loyal to the point of lunacy in the book, tries to avoid the quest several times. At the end, when they all cut their hands with a Coke bottle, the guys are in agony, whereas Bev just gives a little wince, and then she's grand. Even Ben walks out on Bill and Bev after Nybolt Street. I don't think there's any universe where Ben Hanscom would abandon on a quest that Beverly Marsh is on. I'm totally happy to have Bev a strong character, but I love these other characters too. I don't think their hesitation or backing out at different points was done to further them as characters. I think it was done to just make her look better, which is a disservice to them. Other than that gripe, I think there's one or two ideas I want to run by you. By your review, I get the impression that you expect Chapter 2 to follow the book in terms of who lives and who dies. Spoiler alert, you mentioned Stan's forthcoming demise and Audra's kidnapping, for example. My interpretation is that all bets are off now. If you remember, at the end, Beverly is describing her vision of the future, and she specifically mentions that they were all there. Now, that might mean something like Stan's spirit being there with them, and Mike's too, since he's in a hospital in the book, but I think it might mean that they won't necessarily have the same fates as their book counterparts. If Henry is dead, although I doubt he is since we didn't see him die, who's going to put Mike in the hospital? Another idea I wanted to mention relates to what you said about the scares of the film. There's two moments in particular I want to look out for the next time you watch it. In Ben's library scene, keep an eye on the old lady out of focus in the background. Also, whenever anyone watches the kids' TV show and all of the adults watch it, try to listen out for what they're saying on the TV. I find those subtle background scares to be as good and as well done as any lynching ones, although I haven't seen the latest Twin Peaks just yet. I think the subtle moments like this capture the whole it equals dairy, dairy equals it thing perfectly without resorting to the tie, tried and tested, one, tense music, two, silence, three, boo method. I completely agree. Those two scenes, um, or those two uh, subtle scares are um, some of the strongest points of the, the movie. One small point where I have to disagree with you completely is your point about it messing with the kids. I felt that in some scenes, it was generally trying to kill all the kids. Basically, anytime it did the whole charging run thing, I think he was trying to get them and kill them. And if he didn't, it's because he wasn't able to. Although I have to concede that once or twice with Eddie and Beverly, for example, he could have just killed them and been done with it. Some points that we agree on. Henry Bowers. Although I didn't hate his performance, it's ambiguous. I'm ambiguous about it. I think the actor was trying to go for a distant, distracted thing, but he didn't really pull it off. Although apparently there were several Henry scenes cut after test screenings as the scenes in question made Henry a bit more sympathetic of a character, which I guess confused the audiences. Again, Pennywise was brilliant. Although I loved Curry's job, I now prefer Bill Skarsgård. Whereas Curry seemed like an evil man with strange powers, Skarsgård actually seems like a thing pretending to be a clown. Like, his Pennywise is extremely childish in his own right, yet he also seems to absolutely despise the kids, and his weird eye movements really add to his otherworldliness, as if he doesn't even realize, or at least doesn't care, that the glamour is slipping. Mike and Stan. Stan seems to have been transformed into a total wuss who's just afraid of a big bad painting. Um, and he's just afraid of everything. His greatest fear is a big bad painting. I'm sorry, I... Um, I, I, I actually, just so you know, I, I just stopped recording for a second and I came back. I had to take a phone call from my real estate agent. We just got an offer on a house, which is very exciting because if listeners might know that last week kind of talked about how I'm in the process of moving. Um, so keep your fingers crossed, guys. Like I said last week, there are other houses than these. And uh, maybe we found someone that, that wants to inherit uh, the, the home base of the Stephen King cast. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed, very exciting. Anyway, back to the email. I think that Mike is the biggest missed opportunity of the whole film. The race issue has finally come under the spotlight in the USA. Some of the things that have been happening to black people, which finally came into public discourse with Ferguson, are like something from Derry. Police killing unarmed black people and walking scot-free. These despicable real-world events could have been written into the pages of It. Adrian Mellon's death in the original book was a recreation of Charlie Howard's murder in Bangor, so the precedent is, exists as far as tackling real-life thorny issue goes. I hope the sequel will explore Mike's character and the issue of racism in contemporary USA a little more deeply. And I agree. Anyways, sorry for such a long-winded email, and I hope I didn't come across as super critical. Not at all. I love your reviews for opening up all sorts of new ways to analyze King for me. I hated Walter. Spoiler alert for the Dark Tower, guys. 
Um, I hated Walter O'Dim's death until you made the argument for him having been nothing more than a huckster and a charlatan all along. And then I got it, for example. I just wanted to share my thoughts on the new movie, provide a contrasting voice in place in a place or two of an agreeing one in a place or two and maybe just maybe although highly doubtfully switch roles and point out a thing or two that you haven't picked up for picked up on for a change i hope you enjoy reading my email as much as i enjoyed your podcast over the last few years feel free to read any or <laughs> an all or none as you see fit chop change paraphrase or whatever haha <laughs> thanks again and have um a good weekend ed ed thanks for writing in you made a lot of good points um i, I definitely um you know, I, I, I do agree that uh, some of the other losers did get the, the short change um, in the in the movie. I don't think it necessarily means that the, the strength of Bev means that the others are weak by comparison. I just think that the characters that the that they didn't service those characters with as much care as Bev. I don't think it was to um, to make Bev stand out, though. But that's just my opinion. Kathleen writes, hello, constant reader. I'm one of your diligent listeners who is completely caught up on your fantastic podcast up to and including your most recent review of the new It adaptation. Thanks times a million for all of your hard work and many hours in putting together this journey through King's work. It does not go unappreciated by us King fans in the world who feel they have made a close friend in you, one who finally understands our love of these books and movies. As far as It, this book was one of my earliest King experiences when I was about 10 years old. It's the one I come back to over and over again, and I, and I have read it nine times in total. The characters, good, bad, and ugly, are so real to the truth that they truly have become a part of me and how I approach all other works of fiction. It's the book that I point to whenever anyone doesn't understand the hype about King or disparages him as just a genre writer. On each reread, I still get the creeps when Dorsey Corcoran comes crawling after his brother in the park, inwardly cheer when the losers encounter Pennywise for the first time and get away safely, and cry when, spoiler alert, Richie and Mike have their last phone call and can barely remember Eddie's name. It's an incredible book. I've been so pumped for the new adaptation of It, especially after the disappointment of the Dark Tower film earlier this summer. I wanted to see the characters come to life and actually feel that they were in some sort of danger from Pennywise, unlike the extremely tame 1990s miniseries. Tim Curry is amazing, but the series suffers from its budget and time period and is never as effective watching now as it may have been when it first aired. I've seen the new adaptation three times already, and while it's not perfect, I'm so in love with it. Overall, it's done the book some well-deserved justice and has brought Stephen King fully into relevance again. The kid actors are beyond belief amazing, and I would agree that Bev is the standout in the film. I've seen the criticism that she plays the damsel in distress at the end, but this did not occur um, or bother me at all. Bev delivers the first throw in the rock fight, and the final stake through the face blows to Pennywise in both fights. Yes, she is taken, but she is so fearless as to be completely unpalatable to it. It takes her only to draw the others in and hopefully kill them all, all or at least fragment the group so as to pretend itself from further harm, protect itself from further harm. Why Bev? Maybe because it wouldn't have been her at all if she had just hadn't just been fighting for her life with her father perhaps pennywise sensed her fear and vulnerability in that moment which drew him in and her being selected anyway i thought that all of the kid actors did a fantastic job with what they were given Skarsgård was also nearly perfection for me the subtleties in his facial features drooling when talking to his prey the fact that his whole face would stay the same except for his huge smile one eye drifting off to the side when he was getting hungry were amazing loved his jerky marionette-like movements as well he seemed much more demonic and inhuman than tim curry's performance which fits with what pennywise truly is the cgi sometimes got to be a bit too much but overall i loved his interpretation what would i change my top three things that bugged me were, one, Mike Hanlon. Since they gave Mike's researcher role to Ben, he truly had very little to do except for bring a gun to the fight. I would have loved for Ben to have met Mike in the library and brought him into the fold that way for his grandfather to have played a part in the movie as I really love Mike's father in the book. His changed backstory was fine, although it seemed unnecessary. Overall, Mike is the conscience and record keeper of the group in the book, and both of these roles were lost in these films. I'm hoping that this is rectified in the next movie. Rumor has it he will play a central role of a junkie librarian in Derry, but it was a shame to see him so sidelined here. Others have commented that Stanley has also shuffled to the side, but this kind of happens in the book as well, and I was okay with his involvement level in the movie. 
Henry Bowers. I didn't mind the actor who played Henry. He actually did crazy quite well at the end, but wish he had more to do in the film. I think it would have been so much more effective to see Henry fracturing over the course of the summer rather than see him go nuts in literally a single scene. I suppose if he is being written off, it was a long fall down that well, and will not play a part in the next movie, focusing on more of his character development wouldn't make sense or pay off. But if he does come back in some way, I would have loved to have seen more of his character arc here. We could have had him be the one who broke Eddie's arm, had him doing a hockstetter and killing animals, or start hearing voices, seeing things, talking to the moon before finally getting the knife in the mail. Three, the final battle. As satisfying as it was to see the kids beating the crap out of Pennywise, I was definitely disappointed that more of the spiritual or belief aspect didn't come into play. Eddie's battery acid, or Richie's jokes as ammunition against it would have been great, or maybe having the bolt gun doing much more damage since Bill believed it would fire it in that moment. Just doing physical damage with chains and stakes on such a psychological character was a letdown for me. Again, maybe they will get more into the non-physical nature of battling it in the second film, as they definitely have to do something more and better to top what happened here. And of course, I miss the Barons. Really wanted the equivalent of the dam building scene to show up at the quarry, but the quarry was the closest that we got. Anyway, this is a super long email and I expect no response from it, but wanted to share my thoughts with someone who loves this book as much as I do. Looking forward to your next review um, of the movie for the rest and for the rest to follow on the podcast. Thanks again for all that you do. Kathleen, thank you so much for, for writing in. Um, I agree. I wish that we had more of the Barons um, and I agree with your assessment on Henry and Mike. Um, and with the Barons, I, I just feel as though that it, it, it kind of symbolizes the fact that it wasn't about play and it wasn't about magic and it wasn't about that childhood imagination, which is the ammunition, like you said, against um, against it. Uh, so I think that that was a, a missed opportunity as well. Then April writes, Dear Constant Reader, thank you for putting out such poignant material when it comes to the master of horror. Your analysis of Stephen King's works has given me a deeper understanding and appreciation for his ability to conjure up such magical and terrifying stories. I came to read Stephen King as an adult because, frankly, I was too terrified to read his stories as a teenager. It wasn't until I heard that there would be an It film adaptation that I decided to dive in. I have a great love for Tim Curry's performance as Pennywise because he evoked such terror in me as a kid. I would wake up screaming and avoided sewer drains for years after I saw the 1990 miniseries. When I heard that It was coming out again as a full-length movie, I was immediately thrown into that state of fear, even though I had rationally accepted that there were no child-eating clowns living in my bathtub or bathroom sink. That's when I knew I had to read the book, Sheer Morbid Curiosity. What ensued was a feverish addiction to both the book and Jim Wepper's audiobook version of It. I became obsessed, and my poor husband... who doesn't enjoy horror, suffered through my long-winded conversations about the physical and metaphysical world of Stephen King. After reading it, I did some digging and found your podcast. I can't begin to describe how grateful I am for your dedication to dissecting the literature and providing a window into King's world. I've listened to your podcast now from start to finish, and all I can say is that I am hungry for more. It's wonderful to know that there are such great fans and friends of King, and I am happy to share this passion with you. I wanted to put my admiration forth before I shared my thoughts on the film, so here goes. The overall experience for me was fantastic, especially as a diehard fan of the novel. I enjoyed the opening, especially with the moodiness of the atmosphere and the, mu and the music. The scenes of Georgie hugging Bill's shoulder as he wipes paraffin onto the paper boat made me well up with tears. That image brought all of the emotions of love and sadness that I felt while reading it. The sewer scene was spot on. My only qualm was when Pennywise barred his pin-cushion teeth and took a bite out of Georgie. To me, it was too cartoonish, and I felt it could have been portrayed perfectly with practical makeup instead of CGI. I thought you were spot on about the scare factor of the movie. I wasn't really scared throughout, but I was certainly intrigued, especially when Pennywise has Eddie in his clutches and he evokes such a spirit of menace. I love that he playfully bites at Eddie's hand and crackles that evil smile. I also loved how the director played at the scene when Pennywise realizes that Bill is no longer afraid and you see the monster's playfulness vanish into dread and what I imagined was the first time it felt fear, which is so deliciously played out in chapter 21, Under the City, when it describes the feeling of searing pain and the realization that it could be destroyed. I was smiling in my seat when Pennywise asked Bill in a childish sing-song voice, isn't this real enough for you, Billy? I'm not real enough for you. 
those are my thoughts for now. I actually took down audio of my notes on the film because I had so much to say, but I wanted to get this email out quickly. I enjoy all of your content, and I can't wait to hear more long days and pleasant nights. And may you have twice the number, April. Thank you for writing in. Um, I feel very similar um, about it, the, the movie, as, as you seem to, to be. So thank you for writing in. And Sammy writes, Dear Constant Reader, I happened to stumble upon your podcast while browsing for some new subject matter on my podcast app. By chance, the Stephen King cast came up and I took a chance, clicked on the icon, and I'm so glad that I did. Your concise and thorough knowledge of the works of Mr. King is beyond impressive. Your production value is of rare quality, and your presentation is so that even casual fans of Stephen King can become enthusiastic for all of his works. I was introduced to Stephen King through my mother, who devoured his novels every chance she could. I was an avid, she was an avid reader, but King was always her favorite. At 13, I asked her if I could read one of King novels and got an enthusiastic sure for an answer. I perused her considerable collection, setting, settling on a novel whose spine was emblazoned with the stylized chrome-like lettering, Christine. Thus began my voyage into the world of Stephen King of sexy but murderous Plymouths, of interdimensional child-eating clowns, of rabid St. Bernards, of gunslingers, demons incarnate, and others in a bibliography rogues gallery. But the best part was having a common subject to talk about with my mother to geek out over King's stories with. Though after high school, the rate at which I read the works of King, his books were always there, always within reach, a comfortable familiarity not unlike a favorite pillow or chair, a reminder of home. My mother was diagnosed with cancer in January of 2007 and began treatment almost immediately. During the aggressive chemotherapy sessions, which were done twice a week, Stephen King was a constant companion for my mother. At first, it was some of his earlier work, then a new one, her favorite format, short stories. A book entitled Just After Sunset, which I bought for her for her birthday. She was thrilled, and of course, I asked her if I could read it when she was done. Again, as before, when I had asked her the first time if I could read one of her Stephen King books, the answer was sure. Just after sunset was the last birthday gift I ever purchased for her. Mom passed away January 4th, 2008, nearly a year since her diagnosis. She almost finished just after sunset when she took a turn for the worse. For almost eight years, along with her vast collection, remained packed up in boxes in the attic. I couldn't do it. I couldn't open those boxes. I listened to your podcast. You rekindled my interest in Stephen King. And through that interest, I have felt a connection with my mother and some wonderful memories. Thank you. Sincerely, a thankful reader. Um, oh, my God. Uh, thankful reader, um, thank you so much for writing in. That is an incredibly touching tale. Um, and, you know, I think that speaks volumes about what Stephen King means to us and how Stephen King for those who aren't real Stephen King fans or just know about Stephen King through uh, just living on the periphery of pop culture, think that he is just the, the sum of the worst adaptations of his films, but they don't realize just what he does and how he brings us closer together and how through these imagined worlds that he creates, we are able to come together and exist together. Those of us who have never met and those that, that gave us life, we're able to spend time in worlds that people who don't read his books will never get to visit, and yet we inhabit those worlds, all shaped by someone who most of us have never met. And like I said a couple episodes ago, that is true magic. So um, thank you for sharing that, and thank you for sharing the, the magic that, that, you had to, that you got to spend with your mother. And then we have Bobby who writes, Hello, Stephen King cast. First, let me say I love your podcast. I picked it up a few months ago, anticipating the new movie by searching Stephen King into my podcast app. Um, and yours was the first to show up. I listened to your three reviews of the book It and fell totally in love with the story all over again. It actually inspired me to reread It before the movie. Your podcast feels like a class that meets once a week or so to discuss the pros of Stephen King. You're a world-class professor to keep up the great work. Thank you. Now onto my reasoning for this email. I've seen the new movie twice, and I love it more than the miniseries. Book still trumps both, though, obviously. A couple things I noticed were left out that I didn't actually like. I went into it expecting to be different than the miniseries and the book, but this one kind of bothered me, and you've referenced this point in your original review of the book. The fact that Derry's adult residents are also a part of its evil manifestation. It has control over the town and its adults, which makes it harder for the Losers Club to defeat it. There are, however, a few exceptions in the book and miniseries. Officer Nell, 
the librarian who was always pleasant to Ben, Richie's parents. There weren't any, I guess you could say, good adults in the movie, and I feel as though they could have added a little relief to the movie had they included one good adult. Other than that, I loved the movie. Another quick note, I, I apologize for the sloppy composure of this email. I'm sitting here slow at work typing this up. The apparent death of Henry Bowers does not worry me come 2019 for Chapter 2. I have a couple thoughts of what could become of his role in the next movie. First, and probably the most common idea, is that he didn't die. Quite simply, you never saw him fall to his death. Who knows if he fell into its web alluding to his death. My other opinion is of Tom Rogan. In the miniseries, he didn't have much of a role other than being an abusive husband. But in the book, he has an unnecessary role um, coming after Bill and the Losers. It dragged on in the book and could have been left out, in my opinion. But I do see the possibility of Andy using Tom to fill Henry's role. I agree. And I just wouldn't be, and I wouldn't be against that. Just my thoughts. Again, love your podcast. Keep up the great work. I look forward to hearing more. So, Bobby, thank you for writing in. I totally agree, and I wouldn't be surprised if we get uh, Joe Rogan to fill the role of uh, of an adult Henry. Because I agree. In the, in the book, once we get Henry and Joe, um, I, I think that it, it one one functioning as the other works. But having both was a was kind of unnecessary. All right, guys. So with all of that said, um, out of the way, I'm going to get to my review of 1922. So 1922, unlike it, it's it's one of Stephen King's lesser known works. It's not one of the ones written in, quote unquote, his more uh, famous time period. It, of course, is, is sort of a pinnacle in his in his horror writing. To me, it is the crown jewel in his thesis of horror. Um, it is the culmination of many themes that he had been working on until that point. Um, so, so it, of course, um, that combined with the 1990 Tim Curry performance has really launched um, this this concept of, of what it means for Stephen King's works. 1922 was released in the, the early 2000s, around 2008, I would say, 2007, 2008, 2009, somewhere around there. Um, and it was one of four novellas in the, the, the collection Full Dark No Stars. It is a extremely bleak collection of tales. Other um, The other inclusions in that uh, uh, collection include Big Driver, A Good Marriage, and uh, Fair Extension. So they are all incredibly dark, 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 dark stories, hence the title, Full Dark, No Stars. And the only one that has not been adapted at this point is um, Fair Extension, which actually brings us to Derry. We, we get a look at, at Derry. Um, but uh, but 1922 um, is definitely not one of the, the, the short stories or novellas or stories at all that, that people tend to talk about. Um, it, in fact, it, it feels like a, a flip on um, what we have seen before from Stephen King in the past. He has written period pieces before, um, you know, most notably uh, The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile. However, here... Um, we, we get a, a not as uplifting uh, period piece. Um, this one is just definitely one that, that you would not uh, call um, uplifting or hopeful at all. And so this, of course, is coming at a time when Stephen King is hot right now, and I don't know what the next Stephen King adaptation was. So, I mean, I, I knew that we had, you know, this summer we knew that we had The Dark Tower coming out, followed by It, followed by Gerald's Game, followed by 1922. So after this, I don't know what, what's next on our radar, um, but we'll, we'll definitely, I'm sure that we have right now um, in pre-production and in development a, a number of Stephen King movies that are... Um, trying to get made to continue the success of and, and to, to, to profit off the success of it. Um, like I said in last week's episode, we have Josh Boone, who is working on Revival. He's been attached to The Stand. The Stand itself might show up either on Showtime or CBS All Access. Josh Boone is also tapped to write The Talisman. Uh, the Dark Tower, um, I guess, is still in development as a television series with Glenn Mazzara from The Walking Dead uh, show running it. Of course, I'm sure there's a lot of conversations about what that may look like, but the fact that the movie was so reviled. Um, we have the sequel to It coming out. 
We have um, an Insomnia virtual reality experience supposed to be coming out. We have a Cujo uh, movie in development. We have the director of It, Andy Muschietti, who says that he is interested in doing a Pet Cemetery. Um, we have Salem's Lot rumored to be coming out. So we have a lot that um, are are being talked about and in development, not necessarily in production at this time, but over the next few years, we'll, we'll, Stephen King movies are not going to slow down. They're going to speed up, but I think between now and the next wave, we're, we're going to kind of hit a lull as everyone tries to, like I said, profit on the, the success of it. So with all of that said, I was very excited that we were getting... Um, you know these back-to-back-to-back adaptations and you know a couple weeks ago i reviewed um gerald's game and it was really really well done i do have some issues with it but it was really well done and i was looking forward to the the one-two punch of gerald's game and 11 i'm sorry 11 22 63 of 1922 um which is a is another examination of marriage. This is not between Gerald's Game and 1922, the the best romantic movies to watch with your significant other. Um, <laughs> and I I did not yeah I, I watched this alone with the with the furry co-host last night in in my basement and uh, yeah I mean I so I mean make a long story short I, I had a good time I guess is a is a really weird way of putting it um, but it is a worthy companion piece to to Gerald's Game and just let me provide a running commentary before I get to my my final thoughts. There's no Wikipedia summary yet. Usually I do a Wikipedia summary. So just let me kind of give my thoughts as the movie progresses. And it begins with a creepy establishing shot of the well. That's going to play an important part of the the movie, clearly. With the surround sound kicking in in my my basement, uh, it was a a great way uh, to start the movie. It was very, very immersive. Sets the tone. It's very creepy, and I just heard whispering of of the dead and of the rats all throughout my bat cave. And then we cut to a time period that is quite clearly not our own. Um, and then this is where we meet Tom. I just want my kids back, Jane, as he staggers to a hotel room. Um, Tom Jane is disheveled. He's worn out. He is wild eyed. He's shaggy. He is clearly not right in the head. I mean, and then he puts his ear to the wall, and then we hear, he hears the same whispering that began um, in the very beginning of the movie with with the well. And then that's when we get, and I'm going to get into this later, but this is where we get into Tom, I Just Want My Kids Back, Jane, beginning the narration, um, introducing us to his character, Wilf, and that he has something to confess to. Um... And this is the first time we hear his accent. And like I said, I'm going to get to this accent and his performance later on. Uh, But for those of us who are used to Tom Jane, just being Tom Jane, he is not recognizably Tom Jane here. Or he is recognizably Tom Jane doing a performance. And I'm I'm going to get into this. I'm I'm going to get into it. Because I, I'm going to get into it. Anyway, so with that out of the way, we get our title, 1922. The numbers are stitched across the snood burlap sack that readers know, viewers at this point don't know. Um, the sack is what covers his, uh, his murdered wife's head. And from there, we get the first of many shots of this movie that I made me wish that I saw it on the big screen. Okay, the first one that we see here is just this big sky, puffy white clouds distant farmhouses in endless fields. The success of the novella is how masterfully King crafted the setting. So it is imperative that the time is taken to, to, to make this setting pop. You know, we all have our image of the heartland farmland. And if the director wasn't able to conjure this to the forefront, then he wouldn't be drawing on the strength of the story itself. So by establishing it with the natural beauty of the dream of the farmer's life, he's establishing the heartbeat that beats within Wilf's chest, and it's a dream that he's loath to wake up from. It's a dream that he's willing to murder for, and so we need to see the beauty of this world, heaven, as he calls it. Um, we, we need to see how it is heaven. It's not always going to be heaven, and the, the director, um, Zach Hildrich, is going to do a masterful job throughout this movie juxtaposing this beauty with um, some some shots later on uh, in, in the movie that 
are claustrophobic, are drab, are desolate. Um, the, the, the cinematography is, is definitely on point um, in this movie. And then as Tom Jane continues to narrate, we get stylized introductory greetings of Wilf's wife and son. It's, it's a nice touch. Um, I'm a sucker for choices like these. It's very Tarantino-esque. Um, and after the introduction, we get the conflict right away. Mrs. Mrs. Wilf Arlette, she, she wants to move. Mr. Wilf does not. Uh, she is not meant for this life, and Wilf is unwilling to bend in his life as a farmer. Now, like I said, the director, his name is Zach Hilditch. He, I should note that he is also the writer of this, and he does not waste any time. He gets right to the divorce conversation. Um, it's going to happen, and Arlette is going to take uh, Henry, the son. Um, now, Wilf's descent into murder is now reinforced with immediately, by the way, with haunting sound design of whooshing, almost like um, heartbeats in an empty chest, and the blood-red sky hanging above his precious farmland. We see him stew in his thoughts with quiet, sinister contemplation. There is no rage within Tom Jane. There's no rage within Wilf, just, just hatred and cold commitment to murder. We then get the thesis of the story, that there's a, a man inside every man, um, a conniving man, or keeping with the Arrested Development theme. For those of you who don't know, that's why I'm calling him Tom. I just want my kids back, Jane. Uh, but when, whenever I read there's a man inside every man, I always think of uh, um, an Alrapist, Dr. Tobias Funke's book, uh, The Man Inside Me. But within, within a man, there's another man inside every man, uh, the conniving man. It's a thesis that was also applicable to a good marriage and fair extension, um, by the way. Two of the four novellas, like I had said, um, in the collection, Full Dark, No Stars, from which this novella came from. Now, just as Wilf's son, Henry, later known as Hank, is falling in love, Wilf himself is ready to end um, his own love, and he ropes in Henry to help commit matricide. Luring Arlette into a false sense of security and then getting her good and drunk, the James enact their dastardly plan. Now, here we go. The, the, the movie is going to hinge on this moment. It has to matter for the characters. It has to matter for us as the viewers. And as for the deed itself, as for this murder of, of Wilf's wife, of Henry's mother, of Arlette, this thing is ugly. It is messy. It is sloppy. And it needed to be. This is not stylized. The camera doesn't break away. It stays with the boys as they hold her down, as she's fighting. She struggles. She attempts to beat off her attackers under the confines of this burlap sack. She groans. She grunts. She slaps. They try to hold her. It's unsuccessful. They're not good at it. Hank will later call him out on that. Um, in the struggle, like she's slashed. She's cut. And, and Tom Jane had opted for the knife because he felt that it would be less painful than smothering her with the pillow. But the method he uses is horrendous in both intent and execution. It's an awful scene to watch, and it needs to be. This is not a, rom a romantic look at murder. You know, right now with so many podcasts and so much look at, at murder and serial killers, this, there's this weird fascination with death um, and, and murder. And in a scene like this, it completely takes away all pretense from it and shows it for a despicable, gross, and ugly act for what it is. And um, so this, this is strange to say, but this is a highlight of the movie. After the deed is done, Arlette goes down the well, and the horror really starts to take root here as she becomes a, a food source of the rats. Um, the visual of her not just covered in rats, but with a, a rat tail whipping out of her mouth, it's really unsettling. It's very well done. And after this, we get the inclusion of the inquisitive lawyer and the sacrifice of the cow into the well to cover up Arlette's body. And then I, I got to say that it's almost like, you know, checking off boxes. I mean, the things that happen here happen in, in the book. The police show up. Shan swings by to check on Henry. He hasn't been himself. Um, the rats keep going. Um, they're at it again. They go after the livestock. Um, and then tensions escalate as Hank gets Shannon pregnant. The wedge between father and son grows wider. Shortly after, Hank cuts out of town uh, to break Shannon out of the home for Wayworld girls. 
Back at Wilf's place, the, the haunting by the rats increases, leading to some battles that cause a nasty bite on his hand. His roof starts falling in. Fall gives way to winter, and he's trapped in a hellscape of his own design, isolated from the world, frozen, sick, and haunted by the ghost of his dead wife and the legion of her rat army. The Rat Queen descends upon Wilf and tells a tale of Hank and Shannon, outlaws on the run and gunned down. In this moment, the wife gives her husband not the life of a child, but the tale of the death of their own. And then, you know, to make a long story short, after losing everything else, Wilf loses his farm. He finds himself in Omaha, the city that Arlette had wanted to go to in the first place. And there, in the hotel where we first meet him, he waits for his reckoning as the rats Arlette, Hank, and Shannon come for him. So, that's it. That's the movie. I mean, it's, it is pretty straightforward. Um, I, I, my concluding thoughts is that it's... I think that something like this would... If I think that a if a filmmaker had wanted to do an anthology like Cat's Eye, this would have worked very well as a short piece, a short half an hour or forty-five minutes length uh, adaptation. But a feature length to me, it it kind of dragged out a little bit too much, and that's not you know Zach. That's not uh, Zach's fault, you know. I mean, because Zach Hildrich wanted to make a movie and he made an effective, you know, 1922 adaptation. It's just one that I think works very well um, on, on the page and it works all right enough um, as a film. I think it's beautiful to look at. I think the performances are, are good. Um, I think that the strength is, is the look of it. Um, I think that it is convincingly um, of the, the 1920s. I think that uh, the colors pop. I think that the farmlands. Uh, I, I think that they are their own, um, well, setting obviously. But I, I think that it's it's the strength. I mean, I think that it is the MVP of the movie. Uh, I mean, the beautiful shots of the land and the sky are any one of those could be printed and framed, um, and and not just for their beauty, but for their ugliness as well. Um, the movie is going to work, and it's the, the land is going to illustrate Wilf's uh, corruption um, and haunting and his hell uh, on earth as the, the land that was once heaven to him rots and um, falls into death until the, the house itself is literally falling apart from the inside and infested with rats and the ghost of his dead wife. Now, I, I think that the movie itself just suffers from the fact that it, it just, it's not the novella. I mean, 1922 is an extraordinarily, it's a, it's a dark, it's a very, very dark written work because we are fully immersed in Wilf's head. And like I said, Zach Hildrich does what he can with the uh, decision to have Tom Jane narrate the story. But I mean, there's still no substitute for living in Wilf's head. Now, with that said, like I'll, I'll always say, it's still well done. It's a really good companion piece to... Gerald's Game, which came out a couple weeks ago. Um, it's not the best movie I've ever seen, and it's not the best Stephen King movie I've seen lately, but it is a strong entry in the current reign of the king that we currently find ourselves living in. So let's talk about Tom Jane. Tom Jane is no stranger to Stephen King adaptations, as we have seen him successfully in uh, in The Mist and Dreamcatcher. And Dreamcatcher has faults, but Tom Jane is not one of them. The, the, the cast in that movie is... Um, is one of the strongest casts ever assembled for a Stephen King adaptation and one of the, the best um, groupings of talent that we've seen from almost any movie. And I think that the, the first half of, of Dreamcatcher as a movie is really strong. Um, it's just that it kind of falls apart in, in, in the back half, but it's not, not Tom Jane's fault. And Tom Jane gives a, you know, a solid... Um, unifying performance in in the midst. He is our lead character. He embodies that Stephen King everyman quality perfectly. And so, I mean, him coming to 1922, it makes total sense. And he's a character that, you know, he's an actor that seems to love his characters. The fact that he did Dirty Laundry um, for those of you who don't know what Dirty Laundry is, you might want to Google or YouTube Dirty Laundry uh, Tom Jane. Um, there's a surprise at the end that I'm going to spoil in a second. So, spoiler alert. So, guys, you might... 
I mean, when you think of the Punisher, you might currently think of John Barenthal, Shane from The Walking Dead, who is currently playing him. But um, back in 2005, 2005 or so, 2003, whenever, um, there was a there was a Punisher movie that came out, and it was Tom Jane as the Punisher, and he loved this character, and um, you know the movie was not well received. Again, not Tom Jane's fault. And, but he loved the character and he loved the potential for the character and he gave a really good, quiet, small, quick performance of the Punisher in a short film called Dirty Laundry and it just kind of makes you wish that he'd given, he was given another opportunity to do, um, to do another crack at the Punisher. I think he would have done a good job. And as evidenced from his role um, in Arrested Development, uh, he will go method. He will go homeless if he has to, if if it means that his uh, if it gets him uh, closer to the, the role that he's playing. So Tom Jane here, he is clearly having fun. He fully immerses himself in Wilf. It is clear that he believes in this character. I'm just not entirely sure that I believe him as the character. And maybe it's because I've seen Tom Jane in enough roles to see him. You know, uh, you know, to, to to see him fully, I, I I know who Tom Jane is as an actor. Um, I don't want to say that he plays the same character over and over again. That's not it. It's just that you you just kind of know his qualities as an actor and, and and the performances that he gives. I mean, this is the first time that we really see him, quote unquote, you know, acting. I, I you know, and and that's very insulting. I don't mean it that way, but I just mean he's giving a a big performance here. Um. You know, he, he's going to, like, Billy Bob Thornton levels of sling blade acting. You know, I mean, his th- this accent that he's putting on, it takes some time getting used to. And I... The performance is good. He dedicates himself to this performance. It's just because I know Tom Jane, and I know that Tom Jane doesn't act with an accent. I always thought that I wasn't watching Wilf. I was watching Tom Jane give a performance, an admirable performance, a good performance. Um, it's just one that I wonder if Tom Jane hadn't done the accent, which I don't believe was necessary. Um, I, I think that I might have plugged in a little bit more. Um, when I see an actor that I know doesn't have an accent, this is not just Tom Jane, but whenever I see an actor putting on, you know, playing an, an American actor playing a British role, I'm never fully invested in that character because I know that the actor is giving a performance. And I then can judge the actor on that performance and say that the actor is doing a really good job, but, in, but it's almost separate from the movie that they're existing in. And that's what happened to me here. I was, I was judging... Tom Jane's performance outside of the movie itself. Um, he didn't feel a part to me of the movie. Now, again, with all of that said, I mean, he does give a very strong performance, um, not just in terms of his accent, but in his clipped tones and the way that he'll distort his face as he speaks. I mean, he becomes another character. He, and even the, the color of his skin, it's, it's, it's you know, you know, just weather-beaten and you know, he's, he's ultra tanned, um, and, you know, his face looks like leather and, or, and just all greased up almost. And, you know, he almost looks like a, something out of a Norman Rockwell painting. So this is not how I pictured Wilf in the, in the books, um, but he gives um, a very, very strong performance here. And it's one that, to me, was just so jarring because I know Tom Jane that I couldn't quite reconcile it with the rest of the movie. So it's it's this I'm giving a very strange backhanded backhanded compliment right now. So if I didn't know Tom Jane and I just watched this movie, I don't think I would have these issues. It's me just kind of knowing who this this actor is and 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 how he normally, you know, acts um, that's kind of blocking it. So all of, all of my issues, any issue that I have is coming from me as the viewer, not the film, not the actor. Um, but I, I definitely wanted to throw that out there, and I don't know if any other people are feeling that way as well. So, so just to summarize here, two things: one, really strong performance, really good performance. Um, two, because of where how I was approaching it, it, it didn't mesh with the movie that I was watching. So, 
congratulations to Tom Jane. He did a really good job. Boo on me. Um, I I had some some issues there. Um, but that is that is me, and I, I acknowledge that that's a it's a me thing, not a Zach um, Hillbrand or a uh, Tom Jane issue. That is a constant reader podcast host issue. So with all that out of the way, let's get to the Stephen Kingisms narration. Um, this isn't the first time that we've seen narration used in a Stephen King adaptation. Uh, Shawshank Redemption is clearly the most famous, with the Green Mile, Dolores Claiborne, um, and the last 15 minutes of Gerald's Game as other notable exceptions um, examples. Bad marriages. Uh, this is quite the example of a bad marriage. Uh, Gerald's Game is also an example of a bad marriage, as um, as we'll see also in a good marriage. And rats. We have lots of rats everywhere, which we have seen um, most recently. Um, I, I discussed rats in Graveyard Shift. Um, and then we have Tom Jane himself. Like I said, he was in Dreamcatcher and The Mist. And then Easter eggs, we have Hemingford Home, which was the home of Mother Abigail from The Stand and an adult Ben Hanscom in it. So guys, um, thanks for tuning in today. Uh, so I could get through some emails and talk about 1922. I always want to say 112263. Um, but uh, but no, I had fun with the movie. I think that you guys will too. Um, like I said, it's a great one-two punch watching Dolores Clay. I'm sorry, watching Gerald's Game and uh, 1922, uh, both which you can find on Netflix. So um, just so you know, I am currently reading Sleeping Beauties, and I'm really enjoying Sleeping Beauties, guys. If you haven't checked it out yet, it is it is good. I am uh, taking some notes as I am reading, and I will definitely get all of my thoughts about Sleeping Beauties once I have finished it. So hopefully by next week, I would love to have it done by my, by my next episode. Um, I would love to have it done by... Uh, Friday because once Friday hits all I want to do is watch Stranger Things season 2 I cannot wait for the second season of Stranger Things we're almost here we are heading into peak uh, Halloween season right now I'm very very excited and then also on Tuesday like I said earlier we have Strange Weather by Joe Hill and for those of you who listened to my review of 20th Century Ghosts you know how I feel when Joe Hill does uh, shorter works um, the potency and the profundity that he is able to to conjure is is truly, truly amazing. So I'm looking forward to him getting back to the shorter works where his his ideas are are so potent and fully realized. So this is, like I said earlier, a great time to be fans of of Stephen King. And I don't know what will be coming next week, but please note that I I will be talking about uh, Stranger Things once I have concluded watching all of Stranger Things Season 2, and I will definitely be reviewing Sleeping Beauties once I have finished that. Once I get and read Strange Weather, I'll be reviewing that as well. And then from there, who knows? Like I said, I'm still going on. I'm still reviewing uh, the the short stories that I didn't get to the first time around. So look forward to some adaptations, including Lawnmower Man, um, and then my reviews of uh, Skeleton Crew and Nightmares and Dreamscapes and Just After Sunset. They're all they're all coming at you. Um, so we we. There won't be a lack of Stephen King material. I just don't know exactly what's going to be next. All right, guys. So with that said, um, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. And on his farm he had some donkeys, E-I-E-I-O, with a hee-haw, hee